I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, we're live. <laughs> Sorry. YouTube is like telling me, your live stream's not working. Try again. So I tried again. Uh, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I am uh, Pastor Mike Winger, and this is the 5 p.m. on Tuesdays, Pacific Standard Time, by the way, live stream, where we tackle issues of theology and apologetics today. It's your questions. And when I say your, I actually specifically mean non-believers or non-Christians. I want to take your questions today in the live chat. That's the goal. That's the plan today. Um, I uh, I hope we're already getting some of those questions. What you do is put a capital Q and then just put your question in the chat. You don't need to tag me in it because I'm not able to read the chat. There's too many chats for me to read. My mods will take your questions and send them to me and I will be answering them um, once we start getting them. So thank you so much for joining me. I put like a few rules in the video description that to give you guys kind of what I'm looking for today. Um, now this could easily turn into, just because I have a lot of experience answering questions from non-believers online, this could easily turn into this thing where I'm basically um, trying to um, uh, field insincere trick questions that people have asked over and over. And even when they hear good answers, they don't care. They just like they're asked. They like to ask their question and try to see people dance. I'm not super interested in that. I would like sincere questions, people who have real, real questions and they want an honest and open answer. I don't promise that I can give you the best answer in the world, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try to give you the best answer I can. And I really appreciate you guys joining me here. So um, it's good to be back. I haven't done a video in like two weeks. I think it's been like about two weeks. And um uh, we, I was out of town and then I was out of town twice in a row, actually, once for the, a conference and then because of a vacation um, to visit my dad in Arizona. So, um, so yeah. Um, so send those questions on over and then my, uh, my buddy AJ is going to forward those to me and I'll just be waiting. I, I told him to wait until the live stream started because what happens is people load up their questions in the live chat before I'm even live online. And then all the people who come for the actual live stream they don't get their questions in. So um, I will say this as a way of kind of preparing us for the moment as I'm getting your questions populated in our chat. I have found that um, that the most common objections to Christianity, the ones I hear the most often, and I'm talking about on the street, like just talking to normal people, the most common objections to Christianity are usually the worst ones. And the hardest objections, as in ones that, that would make you really scratch your chin and I would like, let's really take some time and think this over. Those objections are usually not anywhere to be seen in the minds of, of those who are rejecting Christianity. I wonder why that is. I don't, I don't know if I have an explanation for that. Um, but, but I also acknowledge this, that those objections, they seem hard to the people who are offering them. Like these seem like good and legitimate objections to Christianity, objections to following Jesus, to believing in Christ. Um, and so let's talk about it, right? Let's see if, if I might be able to offer you something that would push you one step closer to Jesus. That's, that's the point here. That's my goal. Yeah. I've, I've been, you know, a, a goal to see you know Christ and to, um, be transformed and saved by the knowledge of him. Um, but I also realize those questions might be a stumbling block to you. So maybe I can get one of your stumbling blocks out of the way. That's the idea. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, let me. I'll take one while I'm waiting for uh, AJ to send me over a big list. I have. I see one in the, in the chat here from uh, Ezekai who says, "How do you explain to non-Christians that Jesus indeed was a real person?" Um, this is actually a great question. It's about the historicity of Christ. Um, it, it's a it's a great undercutter for the gospel when you're telling people Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and then they say, uh, "Yeah, Jesus never died on the cross. Like there is no Jesus. 
he never existed in the first place. That's a pretty substantial undercut. It seems like a very good objection to Christianity. Um, one of the things I like to tell them, here's two ways to go on this. One is to try to walk them through all the evidence. And you could talk to them about how we have um, so many different sources of um, of you know, for the historicity of Jesus Christ, whether we have it in the gospels themselves, we have it in Paul's writings. Um, And by the way, these are different sources. These are not, the Bible isn't one book. It's multiple books written by different authors over, over a course of time. It's gathered together, but they're still different books, different works. And so those are all different first century sources that speak of the historicity of Jesus. Now, when historians evaluate these sources, they agree that Jesus was a real person and they can even line up a list of facts about Jesus that atheist historians, non-Christian historians will agree are really true about the real historical Jesus. And so you could, you could, you could go down that path, right? Like first, you know, gather the evidence, um, the, the, the epistles, the gospels, and then I can go to non-Christian sources like Josephus and Tacitus and Marabar Serapion. And I can quote a large list of um, secular, or I shouldn't really call them secular exactly, but non-Christian sources that support the historicity of Christ. Now, the problem with that reasoning is that often the person who thinks Jesus didn't exist, they don't really, aren't, they're not interested in the history, historicity question. They, they, they've heard it online that sounded convincing to them. They like the idea that Jesus didn't exist, but they're not really seriously interested in an actual historical analysis of Jesus. So sometimes what's more impressive is to tell them that historians laugh at them. And I don't mean this as an insult. I mean, it's more like a wake-up call, right? It's like historians themselves, even atheist historians, will laugh at your face if you think Jesus didn't exist. There are like one or two guys out there, Richard Carrier, Bob Price, who try to proclaim that Jesus didn't exist and they're not respected in their field. And there's, there's a reason for that. It's because they're basically playing fast and loose with reality when they try to say Christ wasn't an actual historical person. Now, if you want, um, there's two different tactics to take. One, show them the history or just tell them how silly it is. Sometimes that's more effective, actually. And it's true. I'm not playing games. It's very true that it's just ridiculous to claim Jesus didn't exist, that he wasn't crucified under Pontius Pilate. There are, um, in fact, historical facts that you can say about Christ that are agreed on by a consensus of historians that, that um, let me, for instance, uh, he was a real person. He was really crucified under Pontius Pilate, that the disciples had real experiences they thought were Jesus having risen from the dead and seeing him alive from the dead. That That's a real historical fact about Jesus. There's a whole bunch of other ones that you can get into. Um, and I have done so in some videos on my channel. And I have a video on the historicity of Jesus with Dr. Mike Lacona, who gets in there and blasts that sort of stuff out of the water. So there's a couple different angles. One, show them the evidence. Two, show them how silly it is. Um, yeah, so let me uh, let me take another question from you guys. I got a, I already got some in the queue now. This one is from, um, and you know what? Let me add too because I just don't want to miss this opportunity. The the there's something called the minimal facts. This is what Gary Habermas, who is one of the premier historians about Jesus in the world right now, and this is what he he talks about. He's a Christian too. And he, he offers these minimal facts. He says, here's the facts, these four facts. Sometimes he uses five, depends on how you word it. Um, these, these facts that um, even secular historians will agree on about Jesus. There's a consensus of scholarship on all these facts. And he argues that those bare minimal facts, skipping all the debated issues, that those bare minimal facts are enough to argue that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. That is a huge claim. This is, a, this is pretty massive. I want a non-believer to know this. Christianity is saying that we can put forward 
Christians, I should say, are saying we can put forward a really strong historical case for the resurrection of Jesus, even if we grant, which we, which I don't grant it really, but even if we granted that a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible was false, we could still prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Now that doesn't mean that those things in the Bible are false. It means that we're just, we're just saying, let's skip past all these debates and let's talk about the resurrection. And I think it's a pretty powerful argument. Um, you should check out, uh, look up Gary Habermas. He's got some stuff online. Uh, Cameron Bertuzzi on Capturing Christianity recently put a video up of Gary Habermas going through the argument for the resurrection. Um, so yeah, Lemon Difficult says this, asked a question. <clears throat> You've put off questions about First, First Timothy and the role of women in the church. Do you struggle to accept this teaching? Is it ever hard to reconcile your human sense of justice with what the Bible says? That's a great question. Uh, Lemon, first, let me, let me offer a couple thoughts. Um, I'm assuming you're a non-believer because that's who we're asking questions for. So I would say as a, no, as a non-Christian, I would encourage you to not worry about this question. Um, there's some people will be bothered by some aspect of Christianity that is secondary, and they will use that as an excuse to reject Jesus. Now, it's, you could perfectly find, say, that you don't like what the Bible teaches about women, that you think something's wrong with it, but you're still convinced Jesus rose from the dead. And I would say, good for you for at least following the evidence where it leads. That's a healthy, that's a healthy, positive thing. I don't usually debate the issue of the role of women in the church with non-believers because what does it have to do with them? Um, I don't, I don't understand, except that I think that sometimes, and I'm not accusing you of this, but sometimes people are trying to find something against Christianity or they want to find some stone to throw at it. And so they go to a hot topic of our day, like uh, women, uh, women's rights and uh, women's roles. And so um, now I want to answer your question. That was a preface. Okay. Um, do I struggle to accept the teaching in First Timothy? No, um, I don't struggle to accept it, uh, not to my knowledge. Um, what I'm, I'm trying to evaluate my own heart here, be open, open with you and honest. I don't, I don't think I struggle to accept it, um, but I have a sense of fear, and my fear is related to this: What if I'm understanding this passage wrong? Uh, what if, what if my interpretation? that is sort of a historical interpretation. It's kind of been the thinking of the church for a long time. What if my interpretation was wrong and I'm telling people that they can't do certain things in ministry, telling women they can't do certain things and I'm wrong. And that scares me because I feel accountable for that. Now on the flip side, what if I'm right? And then I tell people to go out and do things in ministry, women, that they're not called to do. Maybe they're capable, maybe they're skilled at it, but God's not calling them to do it. And so it's dishonoring the, the command of God, the, the sovereignty of God in his church. And so I'm scared of that too. And so this is um, the reason why I'm avoiding answering too thoroughly on this question is, is this reason. This is a doctrine I have not yet gone back and thoroughly examined. I've done this with some doctrines. Right now I'm in the series on penal substitutionary atonement because I went back and thoroughly examined it. Now I can stand up and I can shout it from the rooftops. When I've done it on this doctrine uh, on, on women and teaching, I will do the same. But you're unfortunately in that zone where I haven't done that yet. So I'm going to ask you to not look at me as your, uh, as your source because I want to put my homework in all over again, restudy the topic. Honestly, I'll probably come out on the conservative side. I so far am not persuaded by the, uh, by the, the egalitarian arguments, but I recognize there's areas of research I haven't done on this topic. So I need to do that. All right. Number two. Spearmint Cookie says, if it's so obvious that Christianity is true, why do the overwhelming majority of scientists and people with high IQs not believe in God? Not just one or two, but the majority. Um, I don't know that that's true. Um, yeah, I don't know that that's actually true, Spearmint Cookies. 
So the number, the overwhelming majority, so that would be like what, 70, 80% of people with high IQs don't believe in God. Um, I don't think that's remotely true. Um, and, and, and I think there's a, there's also a, a problem with correlation and causation here. Um, the fact that our, our, you know, our universities and our higher education do have atheist leaning teachings. I mean, they do. This is, if, if you don't see this, then you're really blind. Like, the universities teach atheism on many levels, not on every level. It's not like just in a pure indoctrination in every class, but in many ways it just teaches and proclaims an atheistic worldview, a, a purely naturalistic explanation of everything. Of, of In psychology, we see this. In anthropology, we see this. In the sciences, we see this. This sort of methodological naturalism that becomes an actual philosophical naturalism. And forgive me for not explaining all those terms. A lot of you guys know what I mean. Um, but yeah, so th the fact that that's going on means that the longer you stay in those those school programs, the more likely you are to be, um, you know, be persuaded by atheism or at least lean towards it. So I think that that is significant. Why? Because it would mean that it has nothing to do with intelligence here. It has to do with indoctrination. And if intelligent people think they're uh, immune to indoctrination, or if you think you're immune to indoctrination, then you are... The you are especially vulnerable to it because you, you means you don't see the indoctrination you're experiencing right now. So yeah, I, I think that um, uh, that that I should say that I should also say things like, for instance, in uh, in philosophy, they did a a survey of philosophers about God, and and the majority of philosophers said they did not believe in God. Um, the irony was that um, William Lane Craig, who is himself a philosopher, he said that he polled. He, he just casually pulled, he called all the guys he knows that were philosophers or a bunch of them in different schools and in different fields. And they all said that they were never even asked about this survey. And so the survey seemed to be, seemed to be self-selecting the philosophers that were not, not believing in God to give us the impression that all philosophers don't believe in God. Now, William Lane Craig was in the field. He actually says that the majority of philosophers of religion, because that means that's, that's their actual specialty. They don't have, not philosophy of science, or the philosophy of religion. Um, that they do believe in God. So yeah, I, I would say, yeah, um, there you go. It, and I'll add one more element, one more element uh, to it, and that's this. And that's that Christianity is not the religion of smart people, nor of, of, of stupid people. It's not your intelligence that makes you Christian. You're confronted with the truth of Christianity, as everyone is, but you make a choice how you respond to the gospel. And that's how you respond to God, how you deal with your personal sin. And there's all kinds of dynamics going on there that have very little to do with your intelligence. And so I wouldn't expect Christianity to result in greater numbers of smart people believing in Christianity. Um, maybe the smart people have greater accountability because they have greater understanding of the evidence. That would, that would make sense. I hope that helps. Uh, Nick C says, what do you say to what seems to be sexism in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy? This is the same question I got before. Um, and how Old Testament women are treated as second class. I appreciate your view. Um, yeah, Nick, this is a big can of worms question. 1 Corinthians 11, totally different passage and whole different host of questions than 1 Timothy, which are both a whole different host of questions than Old Testament um, and how women are, you say, are treated as second class. Um, I will say that, um, I'll, I'm trying to answer, the, there's different answers to these questions. For the Old Testament, women treated as second class. In some cases, they were. That doesn't mean the Old, Old Testament is saying women are second class. You have to recognize that it's in a culture and it's in a time where this is how things are. And so it's, it's just giving you a real example of what life was like at that time. Most of the laws about women, though, that you read about in the Old Testament, you'll find are not oppressing them. They're protecting them. 
and that's pretty significant. They're protecting them, not oppressing them. That's interesting. Um, for instance, Proverbs 31 talks about this wonderful woman, and here she is. She's a, she's, a, she's a business owner. She buys a field, and she hires workers. So she's a boss and a business owner. In Proverbs 31, that seems to be an elevation of women. And Jesus, his treatment of women, he, he makes women his disciples. Um, when Martha and Mary are having their debate about whether or not um, um, Mary, I think it's Mary who sits at his feet, right? And then tells his her sister, her sister Martha is like, Jesus, make, make Mary come and help me work. Why is she sitting at your feet? Well, to sit at his feet was to act like you were his disciple. And women weren't disciples back then of anybody, right? And yet here she is sitting at his feet and Jesus affirms her. She's chosen that better part. And that, that's, that's a pretty big deal. So Martha was learning that Mary was appropriate to sit at the feet of Jesus and be a learner. We're told that in Christ, there is no male or female, no, no slave or free, no barbarian, Scythian, none of that, no Greek, no Jew. There's, there's the elevation of women. And if we, if we don't see that, we don't see the main message of scripture. Um, now, as far as, let's see, First um, Corinthians 11, that's about women's hair being long or short. I don't really see that as a sexist related issue. I think that's about what kind of appropriate way does God want us to represent our, the image of, of God. And again, I'm not going to offer an answer to that question, 1 Corinthians 11. It's, I think it's something I, again, I want to get into and study more. But when we, when we accuse it of being sexist, what we're doing is we're reading our own um, trigger happy attitudes into the scripture, missing the, the forest through the trees. And we're of course going to walk out angry because we came in angry, I think, in that place. Um, so I'd ask people to read it in context, consider it in, in, the, in the world that it, in which it really existed, and look at the impact it had on men, women, race, issues, and all that. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, ben Vittel says, We have a will, but we cannot choose our will. If we can't be perfect on our own, why are we deserving of punishment for being imperfect? Cool. Thank you for your question, Ben. Um, we have a will, but we can't choose our will. Well, if we can't choose our will, then we don't have a will, do we? I mean, if I can't choose my will then I'm not, I don't have a will. I'm merely responding to pre-programmed desires purely. So I believe that that would not be true. I, I would disagree with the first part of your statement. I would say you, you do choose your will. And I'll give you an example of one way you choose. Um, I'll give you two examples, I guess. One way I think you choose is you you choose. Like when I when I think, okay, I could drink this coffee or I could finish this sentence. Well, I think I think I'll drink the coffee, you know, and I made a, a willful choice. I was a determiner of the decision to drink that coffee or not. So there's evidence that I, I chose what to do there. I chose what to decide. Um, I'm the, I'm the end. There's nothing that determined what I would determine. It was me. I'm the end stop there. That's what libertarian free will is. <clears throat> um, now the next part you said, oh, the second example is, um, is this. The Bible says that when we choose sin, we become more sinful and we become more in bondage to sin. When we choose to obey God, we become renewed as Christians. I become renewed in, in my knowledge of Christ and it changes me from the inside out. Meaning that every decision I make when it's a moral choice, it changes me. And so I become more corrupt or I become, you know, more godly. And so my, my decision to sin isn't just a decision at that moment to sin. It's a decision to yield myself more to sin so that later down the road, you find yourself really stuck in sin and you ask yourself, why can't I quit this sin? Why can't I overcome this sin? And the two answers are one, you need the, you need the power of Christ. You need the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to change you. But the other answer is you chose this sin 10,000 times. And now you're asking yourself why it's so hard to overcome. You 
by your will have chosen bondage to this thing. And so there's an element where even in, in the things that we say, I can't help it. Well, you could help it. There was 10,000 times I chose that. This is Romans 7 where Paul says, oh, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? You know, and that's where Jesus Christ comes in. So, yeah, um, I hope that helps. I hope that helps give at least some answers. So why am I therefore deserving of punishment for being imperfect? It's, it's because I chose sin. And, and when you think about the phrase imperfect, why am I deserving of punishment for being imperfect? I wonder why we word it that way, you know? Like I, I could technically say, why did that guy go to prison for 30 years just for being imperfect? But really he like killed two people. But I don't want to say he killed two people because then it's obvious why he's in prison. So I say, why is he going to prison for being imperfect? Well, now it sounds like a travesty of justice. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we're judged for our wicked sins that we knowingly did countless times. And I am with you, man. I deserve judgment from God for my sins. And it is only by the grace of Christ that I could be freed. So I would say, have a more honest, try to have a more honest, sober look at your own sinful self. And then you'll realize your need for Jesus. Andrew Graham says, why is theism a better view than atheism and agnosticism? Um, well, let me let me start with agnosticism, um, and, uh, and these are just my answers off the cuff. You guys, there's 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 probably better answers, and there's probably deeper answers. But here's something to help us get get talking about it. Right? Um, agnosticism isn't really a view. It, it agnosticism it means I don't know. That's all it means. It means I don't know. And so often the agnostic comes to the place where they just they criticize the atheist and they criticize the Christian or the theist. And they just kind of criticize both views, but they never settle on a view. Now, the problem I have with this is that they're, they're inevitably rejecting the truth because they're rejecting all views. And one of those views has got to be right. So they're absolutely are rejecting truth. Okay, so agnosticism like, doesn't seem like a wise place to be for any length of time. You're for sure wrong when you're agnostic. Now, there's another side you could say, well, agnosticism is really the belief that you can't know the truth, that nobody knows the truth, and you can't know the truth. And that kind of agnosticism, I think, requires a lot of justification. You got to prove to me that no one can know, because I sure feel like I have a lot of good evidence to show that Christianity is true, that God exists, that Jesus really rose from the dead. And so how can you tell me I can't know these things? I'm determining the truth of Christianity the same way I determine the truth about other areas of life. So... That seems odd to me. Um, okay, why is theism better than atheism? Um, now here, I might ruffle some feathers, but I don't mean to. Dear atheists, I'm not messing with you here. I'm just trying to be honest. Um, I think that, that that theism, belief in God, has several, and I should say quite a few, really good reasons to support evidences or arguments to support theism. And atheism has poor rebuttals to those arguments and it doesn't have any arguments any that I know of in support of atheism one could offer the problem of evil but I don't think it works and so um so yeah theism has great arguments in support of it so God is God is the best explanation for why anything exists at all now oftentimes we hear atheists respond to that line of reasoning with that's a stupid question. And I mean, Richard Dawkins, this is what he says. That's a dumb question. That's a stupid question. You shouldn't even ask why anything exists at all. Um, or, you know, Stephen Hawking, who, and these are brilliant men, right? But you can be foolish and brilliant at the same time. Stephen Hawking says that, um, that, that philosophy is dead and that science answers all questions. And th these comments demonstrate an incredible philosophical lack of self-awareness.
That's an, an incredible barrenness in thinking. The question, when you have to say about a great argument for God's existence, that it answers a question that's stupid to ask, that tells me that your case is weak. So God is the best explanation for why anything exists at all. Absolutely. If, if the whole universe were just a paperclip, I think it would be evidence for God because it's, there's, we're, these things are contingent things and God would be the ultimate eternal source. I think God exists necessarily and we can run a series of arguments about how God must exist by nature, but by nature of who he is, he must exist. Um, then there's things like the teleological argument or the evidence for design in the universe. God's the best explanation for the fine tuning of the universe, both cosmically and biologically, those types of things that we see. Um, you could run an argument from the resurrection of Christ that God is the best explanation for the historical facts around the person of Jesus Christ. These are all good arguments you could run, you know, for God's existence, for Christianity. You could run an argument from prophecy from the Bible, that the Bible has legitimate, fulfilled prophecy revealing that it is the mind of God inspiring this work, which validates God, the Bible, and Jesus all in one stroke. Atheism usually is, is supported by um, snide and snarky comments coming to the other side, or often false fallacies, you know, where you say about a Christian view, oh, well, that's circular reasoning. And it's not really circular reasoning, they just don't understand the argument very well. And that, that becomes difficult because once someone's laughing and mocking you, it's difficult to tell them, well, here's where you got that technically wrong, you know, and it, and it kind of kills the conversation. But, um, but there, there, I would say there's the advantages to that. Now, there's another advantage of theism over atheism I will offer. And that is that atheism is not sustainable for us as human beings. Atheism will destroy our sense of goodness. Um, it will destroy, and, and now many atheists will have a very strong sense of goodness. So I'm not talking about them individually. I'm not talking about the individual atheist, but atheism, its effect on the global community will have it will, will be a very terrible effect because it removes a real sense of human value and worth. It removes a real sense of accountability for our actions, an ultimate sense of accountability. It removes a sense of purpose and meaning, and it removes any justification for belief in moral duties. That is a big deal. Atheism leads us down a scary, scary path in society and eternally that is destructive on all levels, in my opinion. Um, now, this is ironic because many atheists, they feel that they're being liberated by their atheism. They feel that atheism has set them free. And I, I get that. I get where you're at. You feel it sets you free. And the more you vilify Christianity in particular, the more you feel good about atheism. But those vilifications of Christianity very often are distortions, total twistings of what Christianity actually teaches or is, and ends up being a kind of propaganda yeah, so there's there's my answer to that, Andrew Graham. I hope it I hope it's helpful for you. Colin says, um, "What would Mike say to Egyptology expert who comes to believe Jesus existed, died, rose, and reigns, but refuses to give Jesus allegiance because of Jesus's belief in the historical Exodus?" Um, wow, that that's an interesting question. So the hypothetical is you've got this expert in Egyptology, and he's convinced because of his research in Egyptology that the Exodus never happened historically. Um, and now he also was convinced that Jesus really died and rose from the dead, but he will reject Jesus now because he, because he thinks Jesus believed in the, um, the Exodus. Well, I think Jesus probably did believe in the historical Exodus. And I think the historical Exodus has really happened, but he's going to look at me and say, but Mike, you don't know what I know. You don't know what I know, Mike. And I would say, um, there are times where our own worldview, we, we, we have things that we think are true that conflict with each other. 
There's times where this can happen, right? And when that happens, you need to go with whatever is the, you, you need to sort of pick the thing that outweighs the other things and you need to go with that or lest you fall into agnosticism forever and end up rejecting truth for guaranteed. That's what agnosticism does. So you're convinced Jesus died and rose bodily from the dead, but you're going to reject him because you think he believed in something that I, with my profession as a historian, you know, Egyptologist, I say did not happen. That just seems unwise to me. Now, let's suppose that, let's put the shoe on the other foot. Let's suppose that I have a profession, I don't, but let's say I'm a philosopher of morality, of ethics, you know, and, and I, I, I do this all day long. It's, it's my bread and butter. And I'm convinced that some of the stuff that happened in the Old Testament that God commanded was immoral. Yet I am also convinced that prophecy and that the resurrection and the arguments for God's existence are all true. So I believe God exists. I believe that he must be the God of the Bible, yet he commanded things that I think are immoral. I think a better response would be, wow, God probably knows better than me. Like, let me, let me apply this now to the Egyptologist. Dear Egyptologist, you think, you think to yourself, I really know my field. Jesus didn't know my field and I'm a professional in it. And I have concluded something that Jesus thinks is true is actually false. Now, I want you to think of Jesus as perhaps a more reliable source than yourself and think if he really is who he says he is and he really died and rose again and he says the exodus happened then this might give me a reason to think that my own research is problematic and you as an egyptologist have been trained to take your research and hold it all tentatively waiting for more information well i would say jesus is the better egyptologist and he should be trusted but even if you don't follow that reasoning you the idea of rejecting christianity knowing it's true but then rejecting it because of a secondary issue seems uh, really foolish to me um, let's see Lemon Difficult asked another question. In Genesis 3, and, and keep asking your questions, guys. We can definitely get some more today. Um, so yeah, please put your questions in the live chat. Thanks for joining me. I'm not going to mock you. I'm not going to make fun of you. I, I want sincere questions. And I might even do a few trick questions uh, that come my way because sometimes they're fun to uh, use. All right, Lemon Difficult says, In Genesis 3, the serpent tells Eve the fruit would not kill her, but would open her eyes. And that's what the fruit did. Why do Christians call this interaction a deception or a lie by the serpent? Um, so, the, the, actually, let, let's, let's look at the passage. Let's look at this passage and we'll go to it. All right, here it is, the, um, the Genesis passage. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So there's the, there's the danger. You're going to die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And then she, she sees that it's, it's fruitful. It looks desirable to make one wise and all that. So she goes ahead and eats it. Um, now, did, did Satan really lie? Well, Satan did what, in my opinion, is the typical version of lying, which is where you take something that's true and you twist it somewhat. And that was the nature of what he did. What he affirmed was, was, was sort of true. It's going to make you wise. It wasn't really 
wisdom, but it would, it would give them the knowledge of good and evil. I wouldn't call that so much wisdom. It would give them the knowledge of good and evil, the experiential knowledge of having rebelled against God, and it would open the floodgates of all kinds of sin. Um, but the, the big lie in what he said is when he pretended that she wouldn't die. Oh, you're not going to die, he says to her. Sorry, I need that. Ah, got to grab this. Um, you're not going to die. But no, she does die and her and Adam die and they, they died immediately in losing relationship with God and they died eventually in physical death. And that whole thing started at the moment of the eating of the fruit. They were banned from eating the tree of, um, from the tree of life. And so then they died. So yeah, no, uh, God was, God was right. Satan used something that sounded true to try to deny something else that was also true. And that seems to be like the normal way of, of, of lies. And that's the nature of, of sin so often for us. We, we think we can have our cake and eat it too with sin. Um, I'm longing for relationship. And so Satan wants you to think that you can fornicate to achieve those relationships. You can, you can fornicate and that's going to get you what you want. And in the end, it's that lifestyle of fornication that leads to the destruction of your future marriage, leads to cohabitation, which ends up in uh, all kinds, you know, radically increased separation rates, even though they don't have statistic on divorce rates for those. So there's an example where, where Satan's going to lie to you. Oh, you're feeling down and you want to feel better. Just use drugs because, you know, when you get high on drugs, you're going to, you're going to feel better. But the long-term effect of drugs is you end up feeling worse, even though short-term you felt better. So there's a truth in, in the lie. All right. Um, from eBay six says, my brother doesn't believe in, uh, doesn't believe the Bible arguing that there are much older religions, Christian Christianity copies, i.e. the virgin birth and other aspects that are the same. What would you say? Um, this, this is when I was talking about some of the most common objections are some of the worst. Uh, one of the objections of Christianity is along these lines. Um, Jesus is a, <clears throat> a repeat version of pagan gods and Osiris, just like Jesus, he had 12 disciples and he baptized people and he died and rose again on the third day. He was even born December 25th and Mithras. And he was also born December 25th and, and, <clears throat> and he was born of a virgin and he died and rose again in three days and he turned water to wine and all this kind of stuff. Um, this stuff's really popular on the internet and um, we, we've got to do a better job as Christians blasting this insanity out of the water. It's completely and utterly false. It's totally fabricated. And one of the best ways you could do this is you could ask the person to prove it. Oh, Osiris is all these things. Prove it. Please go to your brother and ask him to prove it. And maybe before you ask him to prove it, to really take advantage of this opportunity, you tell him, what if Christianity is not a copy of pagan religions? What if Christianity is not a copy? What does that mean? Because he's trying to say it's a copy, therefore it's false. Well, if it's not a copy, does that help him see that it's more likely true? And then you proceed to show him it's not a copy. Uh, one of the only cults that seems to have actual connection to Christianity is um, the Mithras cult. And they, they did have a connection to Christian practices. But it seems, when you look at it historically, that the, though the Mithra cult you know, was a, around before Christianity, um, that the practices where they were copying Christianity or they were like Christianity, they came after Christianity became popular. So it looks more like this cult adapted their practices to copy Christianity after Christianity became popular, uh, not the other way around. And so that's pretty significant. Um, yeah, so they'll go down this road in lots of different ways. Some people will try to say Genesis is an original, doesn't have any original content because it has similarities between it and say the Enuma Elish. Um, but in reality, you have to look at the differences and you realize that Genesis is proclaiming things that were... Um, 
unproclaimed in those religions that were going on at the time. So yeah, I, I hope that that helps. Uh, you got to chase this stuff down, chase this stuff down. I actually have a video on Christmas, believe it or not, where I deal with, um, I think it's called like, uh, myths about no, something about myths about Christmas, Christmas or Mythmas or something weird like that. I forget what I titled it, but I get into some of these issues, you know, Mithra and, um, Dionysius and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Ask him to prove it. Ask him to prove it. Cause it's not true. Um, Riley Smith says, how do you reconcile the disputed letters of Paul? Do you believe translations like the NLT, ESV, et cetera, are still infallible compared to the original Greek manuscripts? Um, well, okay. Two pretty different questions here. So, um, how to reconcile the disputed letters of Paul, what she's referring to, or he Riley's referring to here is, um, the question about Pauline authorship of all the letters that Paul wrote. Paul wrote a number of letters in our new Testament, right? But the question is, did he really write them all? And some scholars would say, in fact, a lot of scholars would say that several of those letters, Paul didn't really write here. I think it's just the result probably of scholarly bias over the years against the Bible for a long time. If you disagreed with a traditional Christian view, it was considered good scholarship, or at least that's how it appears to a layman like myself. Um, and so there's sometimes where scholarship's just wrong on things. And the all of these problems get resolved if Paul simply used um, an amanuensis in his writings in some cases. So here he's using someone to help him write these things down. He looks over the structure of the letter, that kind of thing. Other times they're, they're, they're making a big deal out about small stuff. Um, like Paul didn't usually use this word. He uses it in this letter, not that letter. Therefore, it's not Paul. It's like, come on. I mean, people, that's how people write. People sometimes use words they don't normally use. So I do the same thing. You know, it helps to increase perspicuity. Eh? Perspicuity. <clears throat> so, yeah, now I, I haven't done a whole lot of homework on this, uh, but I, but who has is a guy named Daryl Bach. Daryl Bach has done some work on the, um, on, um, uh, the letters of Paul and you can, and, and, and who wrote them, that kind of thing. And there's a debate between him and Bart Ehrman who promotes the idea that there's forgeries in the new Testament. And you can catch this on the unbelievable, uh, radio program, which I think they have, I think they probably have it on their YouTube channel now as well. Daryl Bach, Bart Ehrman forged. If you search that term, you'll get it. So check that out, Riley. Um, do I believe translations are still infallible? Well, I mean, they're infallible in as, in as much as they represent the original writing. There's always going to be a question in, with translations if if you're accurately representing what the original said. So I I don't know how else to answer that question. I think they're I think they're reliable. I think the translations are reliable. Um, Eric Tiddor, Tibdorf says Jesus says about false prophets by their fruit you will recognize them. Matthew seven sixteen we can see fruit in the lives of many Mormons Baha'is etc. How do you explain that? Sorry for posting twice. I I, I accept your apology, Eric. <laughs> um. Uh, the fruit of, of, okay, when Jesus says by their fruit, you shall know them. He's talking specifically about false prophets, not individuals. Why is that significant? Um, well, if he's talking about indiv in individuals, then you would examine and anybody who seemed like a good person, you would think maybe they're, maybe they're saved or something. Maybe they're a messenger of God or something, but that's not what Jesus is doing. He's saying by their fruit, you will know them, whether they're good or false prophets. So when I look at Mormonism, the fruit I want to test is the fruit of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. That's the fruit I want to test. I want to test the fruit of the leaders. When I look at Islam, for instance, I want to test the fruit of Muhammad. That's the fruit I want to test. It's the founders and leaders. When I look at Jehovah's Witnesses, I want to look at um, Rutherford and um, Taze. I want to look at those guys. 
and I want to see the fruit of their ministries and the fruit of their behaviors and the way they live their actual lives if it's consistent with the things they proclaimed. And so, for instance, Joseph Smith in Mormonism, Joseph Smith would go up to a man and tell him that the man should should leave his wife and give his wife to Joseph Smith to be another one of Joseph Smith's wives. What kind of fruit does that sound like to you? Say you're following Joseph Smith. You think he's a prophet of God. And he comes up to you and he says, hey, hey, um, Eric, Eric, uh, God's telling me that um, he wants me to marry your wife. And you're going to have great treasures in heaven. God's going to bless you, but you need to give me your wife. That's called bad fruit. I mean, this is, this is shameful, the divorce, the adultery, all of the above. This is wicked fruit. That, that's, that's Joseph Smith. Brigham Young said, if you don't practice polygamy, you can't enter into the highest level of heaven. These are the founders of the Mormon church. So there's the fruit. Um, Baha'i, I haven't done a lot of study on Baha'i. Um, on the other hand, there's, there's plenty of people in different religions who seem to live good moral lives. But one of the, one of the biggest indications that something's wrong with us is when we're rejecting God himself. And so if I think, but that person's such a good person. I'm like, well, if they're so good, why are they rejecting God? Think about it. This is kind of significant. Yeah. So now I don't think you have to go and find secret sins in everybody. But but yeah, you want to measure the fruit of ministries or of, of religions. You know, you need to look at the founders of those religions. Now I look at Jesus. I compare the fruit of Jesus' life, who lived self-sacrificially, who gave himself for others, who never did in, anything seemingly for himself. Um, there's good fruit. Um yeah. Another question from Lemon Difficult says, uh, how does secular marriage between two people of the same sex or gender affect Christianity? Why do Christians spend so much time advocating against something that isn't relevant to them? Well, why is it relevant to anybody then? I mean, if it's not relevant to Christians, I mean, this is just an honest question. If, and, and a lot of Christians don't, they don't even talk about the issue, but, but let's say same sex marriage. Um, why do they, why why is it relevant to anybody? Why do we have to legislate that everyone has to accept it and everyone has to support it if it's not relevant to us? Why is it like a baker and you know has to make a bake that supports same-sex marriage or else he's going to get sued 50 times in a row? That's happening again. The guy's getting sued again right now. I mean, it seems to me that the issue is being pushed from one side on onto the other, not the other way around. So um, how does it affect Christianity? It doesn't affect Christianity. It won't change Christianity at all. I think it's. I think it, it 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 creates more sin and more harm in our culture, and that grieves my heart. And I think that, especially when I see Christians who are going down the road of supporting same-sex marriage, I go, I think you're confused. And I understand being confused. Let me give you an example of the confusion. The question of same-sex marriage: <coughs> Is it really about equal rights, or is it about the definition of marriage? Here's a big divide on the topic. Those who think it's about equal rights, they're constantly you know, making the case that we should have the same rights for straight people as we do for gay people. And I would agree with that in principle. I'm like, well, yeah, we should have the same rights. Well, then they go, well, then why aren't you supporting same-sex marriage? And I go, well, because it's an issue of the definition of marriage, not an issue of equal rights. Ah, so the definition of marriage, what's that about? The definition of marriage would say that marriage simply is the union of a man and a woman a man and a woman, such that could potentially create children. And that this is the foundation of all society. Think about this. this. All of society is built on this relationship. All of society. And to change the definition of something that's at the core of society and is, is beautiful and good and righteous and holy, to include something that's actually, uh, that's not at the foundation of society, that is in fact in and of itself a distortion of God's created order, that is a problem. 
that is a problem. But people act like it's a personal attack. Like I'm mad at a, a, a gay person because they're, they're, they want to get married or something. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm saying God has a better plan for you than this. And I don't want to have all of society, all of society, which they're doing now, going down the road of affirming something that's harmful to even the people that they think they're helping. And that, that's, that's not a, a good thing. It's not a godly thing. Um, but I don't, I'm not throwing stones over the issue. So yeah, now I, why do Christians spend so much time advocating about it? I, I don't think they do advocate about it even enough, to be honest. We don't talk about it enough. I think we're, people are, Christians are intimidated by society. They're intimidated by culture. The amount of hatred I've received for the videos where I deal with homosexuality is in, intense. Um, people who track me down, my person, they'll track down my personal social media just to curse me out and call me names. And, and I'm like, I got, I got nothing but love for you, man. I just think you're doing something that's wrong. So I hope that helps. <laughs> um, happy Earth Bites. I used to believe in the inerrancy of scripture for 30 years, but no longer do. Why do some Christians believe this doctrine is important? Why believe it? Prophecies don't indicate inerrancy. Um, in a sense, prophecies, you're right, don't, wouldn't indicate inerrancy. Um, I take it you're a Christian, though. I am hoping to get questions mostly from non-Christians here. Um, but some there's here's a couple different reasons to believe in inerrancy. Um, one would be that you think that if scripture is inspired, it's automatically inerrant. Like if God directed you to write that, then it's going to be something that whether it will, it will, it will not have, where it will not have errors. So that's just like a philosophical idea. It's like, yeah, boom, one leads to the other. Another reason to believe in inerrancy would be to think that Jesus himself likely did. And so you can do a whole study on Jesus and what did he, what was his view of scripture? Um, why is it important? Because once someone says that there's errors in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, well, which ones are they? And how do you Give me the key. Give me the magic key for determining where the errors are and where the errors aren't. And all of a sudden, you start, people start, this is what happens when people deny inerrancy. They sometimes go down the road of inventing a new version of Christianity just to suit themselves. And they feel they can dismiss portions of scripture and teachings in the Bible because, well, it's got errors in it. And so then they become the inerrant one and the Bible is the errant one. And that, that does happen. Um, so there's a good, there's a safety in believing in inerrancy. But I, but if I reject inerrancy, I'll still be a Christian. I will have trouble with certain passages of scripture and I, I would have confusion about how to read certain things. Um, but I would still believe in Jesus Christ. I think it's a tragedy for those who reject Jesus because of secondary issues. <clears throat> Skeptic Review says, what's your response to that Ephesians was a forgery? Um, Ephesians uses longer sentences than in Paul's other epistles. Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I just think that... It, it's not a big deal. And, and I'm not a linguist, right? But to me, it's not a big deal that Paul wrote in a really long sentence in Ephesians chapter one and didn't do it the same way in say, maybe, maybe he did in Colossians. I don't know. Um, but didn't do it in say first Corinthians. Um, I don't think that's that big of a deal. And I think there could have been multiple reasons why he would have done that. Maybe he was just on a roll. You know, you ever been just writing something and you're like on a roll, you know, I don't know. So anyway, I, I just, I reject that. Now, part of the reason why I reject it is because of my Christian views. It's that I do believe the Bible is God's inspired word and it's a cohesive whole and that Ephesians and Colossians and all these books are part of that scripture. And it seems, um, it seems to go radically against that to think that they're forgeries. Um, so I'm inclined to reject the idea that they're forgeries, but I'm not inclined to do so on blind faith. I, I'm actually inclined to do so based upon principles. I, I believe that God really did inspire the scriptures and give it to me as a whole. The idea that, that, that it's containing forgeries just strikes totally against what has already been confirmed to me to be true. But I've, I don't have videos teaching on this because I would want to get into more of the nitty gritty details if I was to do it.
Um, sorry, I'm still getting over being uh, sick. I'm feeling a lot better than I was, though. Uh, Lemon Difficult, another question. I sometimes call myself agnostic Calvinist. <laughs> if God is real, he hasn't selected me. Oh, that's an interesting view. Um, uh, if he wants me to be saved and I desire to understand him, but I'm unconvinced by the Bible, where do I stand? Thank you so much for your question. Um, I, I really, I just want to say I appreciate it. It, it can be embarrassing to put your question out for an online audience like this. So thank you for doing that. Um, if God is real, he hasn't selected me. I think that, well, what do I say? I, you know what, honestly, I would love to just have a whole conversation with you and listen to you unpack your views and what you're thinking on all these things. That would be my preference. Um, I wish I, I could answer to a lot more of this, but time is what it is. So, um, yeah. Um, let me just see if I can, what I can glean from your question. If he wants me to be saved and I desire to understand him, but I'm unconvinced by the Bible, where do I stand? Okay. So it sounds like you're saying, and let me, let me hope I characterize you right. That you're saying, I, I want to understand God. I desire to know God. And let me go a step further and say, I hope this is your view. I hope that you're saying this, that you're saying, and if God is real, I want to, I want to follow him. <clears throat> I want to yield my life to him. And I want to surrender everything I've got over to God because he's the one who deserves all the glory. Now, if you could, if you could say that, that's a really healthy place to be. And if you're in that place, then I would say, just keep seeking God. I mean, sincerely, like pray, get on your knees before the Lord and seek the Lord and read the Bible and don't worry about the secondary issues. Just go to Jesus and look at who Jesus is and, and see what the Lord does in your heart. Um, but know this, that, that we are a mixed bag of psychological mixed, just mush and our own motives are hard for us to discern and figure out. And this is the case for me. And I know it's the case for you too. What the Bible tells us about our relationship with God is that when people reject God, it's usually because they embrace sin. So I would, I would, I'm going to go at this in a pastoral sense and I'm going to ask you, to consider in your in your life and in your heart, are there particular sins that you would be loath to give up if you found out Christianity was true? And maybe, maybe that is creating a problem for you finding out that Christianity is true. Are there certain aspects of submitting your life to God that just really bug you? If that's the case, then that might be the reason why you can't see a reason to submit your life to God or to believe that there's a possibility there now there's but at the same time like eve when she ate of the fruit she was deceived she really believed the serpent she thought god's wrong and i believe the serpent so there's elements of deception that can go on in there so yeah um seek the lord seek the lord this this fatalistic view that well i guess i'm just not chosen i think that that's a total cop-out i think it's a total cop-out like you have no choice in your life like you have no free will like you're not accountable for the life you live and the choices you make and you're putting it on god and I'm not a Calvinist, so I don't, I don't have to support those views. Um, I would say, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. What, what could the harm be? Um, Mariah Lynn says advice for someone who finds the arguments for Christianity somewhat persuasive, but also seems to fall short of having actual faith, um, still has severe doubts and reservations. Um, Mariah, my advice to you would be, um, boy, I, I, I wish I could just hang out with you guys. I read these comments and I'm like, man, I wish we could just get lunch. 
but um uh, but obviously i can't get lunch with 600 people <laughs> so um so mariah let me say a few things uh, uh write down your most serious doubts and pursue answers to those questions I say write them down because sometimes in writing them down, we find out that we thought we had more than we did have. And there's really, and you write down your most serious ones. So you realize there's really just these three, or maybe it's these two, or maybe it's just this one. This, these are the real ones that really get me. Write those things down. Now, once you get them on paper, step two is going to be this. Ask yourself, do these things really give me warrant to reject all the reasons I have over here to believe in Christ? Maybe you should even write those down too, the persuasive reasons to believe in Christianity. And write those down and ask yourself, do my doubts justify rejecting the things that seem to be telling me Christianity is true? Uh, I'm asking you to process this and work, work through it. Um, another step I'll, t I'll say is this, to actually spiritually pursue God where, where, you're, where you're praying and you're seeking God. You're not doing it so you can get an emotional high. You're doing it because you want to understand and know the truth. And if you're on that path, I think you're, you're in a very good place. So there's a couple things that I would encourage you with. I hope I hope that they help. <clears throat> and everybody pray for Mariah, would you? Uh, Nick C says, doesn't the first 11 chapters of the Bible seem ridiculous? Like spiritual beings having sex with women and producing giants and humans living nearly a thousand years old. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't actually agree with that rendition of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I do have a video where I talk about the Nephilim and that, that's in Genesis 6, the whole giants and that kind of question. Um, for one thing, um, to me, a Samoan is giant. And so we say giant, we think we're thinking of like TV giants. They've got to be like 40 feet tall or something like that. Um, and that's not necessarily what it's even saying. Um, so there are big people, you know? And so, um, yeah. And the, the words that are used there are used later as well to refer to the Anakim. They were just, they were big peeps, man. They were big guys and they were scary to the Israelites. They were like, we were like grasshoppers in our sight. Well, they weren't like 70 feet tall people. They were just a lot bigger than the Israelites were. Um, so yeah, I think there's part of that there. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is another one of those sections where I want to really go back to, um, like I privately obsess over Genesis 1 through 11. And I, I, I believe it. I believe it's God's holy inspired word. But I've heard various ways of interpreting it and ways of justifying those interpretations, some of which are dumb and some of which seem pretty convincing. And so I look at that and I go, gosh, I don't know the right way to handle some, now some of it, I, much of it, I think like I can interpret just fine, but some aspects of it. So regarding answering your specific questions, those are some of the things I have questions about. Um, although it's not ruining my faith in God or my faith in Christ. And I think it's perfectly acceptable for a Christian to say, there's questions I have that I don't know the answers to. That doesn't mean Christianity is not true. And this is what sometimes non-believers think. They, they really think that if, if I can find one passage in the Bible that a Christian can't answer, answer me on, then therefore Christianity is proven false. And I want you to just reflect on that for a moment if you're a non-believer. That doesn't really make sense, does it? In fact, it's kind of expected. I'm reading an ancient, ancient work. And I'm reading it with, with oftentimes, you're just reading it. You have no tools to help you understand the passage in the first place. And so, of course, there's going to be sections of scripture where you're, you're like wondering, what does that mean? What did that mean in its, in its culture and in its time? How does it apply to my life? Um, there's going to be some challenges that are understandable there. Yeah. Um, on, on the flip side, if, if, if it came down to um, where, where you say, I'm going to take a, a, a seven-day young earth creationist that literally lived all those ages, were quite literal, um, 
I would still trust the scriptures and I would still be a Christian because even though I realize there's a lot of scientific challenges to those views, most of those scientific questions are over my head and they're over your head if you're honest. You don't really understand plate tectonics and you don't really understand radiometric dating. Like you could say a few things about it, right? I could say carbon dating and potassium argon dating and uh, halo, radio, radio halo, halos and zircon crystals. and I could, But do you really understand that stuff? I, I would still trust scripture um, and just say I have some un unreconciled issues that I need to work through. Um, being very blunt and honest with you guys. Banzi says, is it forbidden to have more than one wife if you follow Christianity? In my country, South Africa, it is legal in some parts to have more than one wife. This is a question I get from my people. Um, I think that um, the gospel was meant to go out into all cultures and some of those cultures were polygamist. And so... Uh, what I see in the New Testament um, is affirmations of one man, one woman. That's like that's like God's ideal. This is God's calling upon us. Jesus affirms it. One man, one woman. The two shall become one. And it seems like when you add another woman in there, isn't that adultery? You call it marriage, but isn't it? Aren't you cheating on both of them really with with each other? It seems like it to me. Um, but but Jesus affirms one man, one woman. He never does anything that opens the door to polygamy, as far as I can see. Um, in the Old Testament, the, the scriptures <clears throat> uh, refute polygamy, especially for the kings of Israel. They specifically say, do not multiply wives. They're like told not to do this. In the um, New Testament, again, and this is really interesting, in Paul's writings, he talks about leadership in the church and qualifications for leadership in the book of First Timothy. And he says that an, uh, an elder must be the husband of one wife. That's an interesting phrase. And there's a debate on it. What does he mean, the husband of one wife? Does he mean that the guy couldn't have a polygamous relationship? And it seems as though, my, my take on it, and I could be wrong, my understanding is, that Paul's saying um, there were those who were perhaps polygamous who had become Christians, and now they're following Jesus, and yet they've got two wives, three wives, and yet they're saved, and yet they're in this weird situation. What do they do next? I don't see a clear answer in Scripture. Should Is he supposed to divorce two of them? Well, what are they going to do now? Um I think this creates a really complicated, hard question, and I don't know how to answer it for everybody. But Paul does lay down, but those guys can't be leaders in the church because there's something they've fundamentally done that is hijacked and damaged the beautiful picture of Christ in the church that there is in one man and one woman being married. And so I think um, I would embrace someone who was a polygamist becoming a Christian, but if they were like, I want to serve the Lord, I'd be like, no, man, you're breaking the example in this sacred thing called marriage. You're breaking the example of Christ in the church. So you you're not you don't even qualify for leadership because of that situation. So I, I know that's not the full answer, but there's a few thoughts for you, and I, I do hope it helps. Um, I got another question here from Purple Sparrow. There's good evidence that an all-powerful being exists. What is the evidence for a natural, for the nature of this all-powerful being? An all-powerful being would have absolute power to deceive, for instance. Um, great question. Thank you for asking. Um, so this is, I find really interesting. So there's some who go down this road, they kind of grant, hey, so there's a, there's a God. Okay, I'll, I'll grant that there's good evidence for God. But why don't I just think he's just tricking me with all this Christian stuff? Like maybe Jesus rose from the dead like as a joke. Maybe it's just all a big trick. And um, I will offer a few responses to that. One would be, unless I have good reason to think it's a trick, I think I should believe those things which seem to be true. Right Now, this is like a really good rule of life. It's like simple, practical rule of life. Unless I have a reason to think I'm hallucinating that a car is driving towards me, 
I should just believe it really is, you know, and then get out of the way. And rather than, but what if it's a trick? So like, that's not a really livable principle in life to think, what if it's a trick? Like I can't live it consistently. So it seems like I'm specially applying it just to God because perhaps, perhaps I'm using it to avoid some conclusions I'm not interested in. I want to defeat Christianity is, is what it sounds like sometimes. But there's other reasons I could support this. And that is, uh, what do we know about this being, this God? Well, we know that he is good. Uh, right, because God is God is the is the grounding for moral goodness. The, the, anything is good because God is good. So if God's very nature is good, if that's if that's if it's true, the moral argument is true that that, that God explains moral values and duties, then He can't be a liar. Like He literally can't be a liar, as Scripture says, God cannot lie. That's like a deep philosophical claim, I think. So He can't be a liar. And therefore, when he raises Christ from the dead and he delivers us his word, this can't be a lie. It must be the truth because in his nature, he is true and he is good. So that, so some of the, one of these, what I'm saying here is one of these theistic arguments that doesn't draw from the Bible, it just draws from human experience that moral values and duties, we perceive these, we're like, yeah, moral values and duties are real. And then we say, well, God's the best explanation for those. Well, if he is, then he's not lying to you then he's not this giant liar. So there's another line of reasoning that might help support bringing you over, bringing you over, man. Come and come to Christ, I pray. That's that's what I'm hoping for. Um, um, hold on here, hold on. What did I just get? I got some questions. Um, so I think, actually, I think that's it for our questions from non-believers, at least the ones that, that AJ sent me. And um, I'm gonna answer a couple questions from Christians right now because I, I just wanna get to these because I just, I love you guys and have a chance to maybe hopefully bless you. Um, from Kathy Michael, she says, if your pastor's total focus is on divine healing and wants to call his church a healing center for the purpose of bringing in the lost, should I stay or find a different church? Kathy, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question. I'm so sorry. Um, if I was at your church, I would be asking the same question as you. Do I want to be here? This seems problematic, you know? I don't know about this place. Where what's what's the direction you're going in? And and I would say just be really slow to decide. And as you decide, if you do decide to leave, think about the best way to do so. What's the wise and God honoring way to do so? And um, don't just disappear. Um, think about how to honor Christ in how you do this. If you decide to leave, and I pray God gives you wisdom, Kathy. Uh, may God give you great wisdom. Um, from it's coming around again says, does once, do once saved, always saved and Lordship salvation people agree with one another and only argue over semantics? Once saved, always saved is kind of a different issue than Lordship salvation. Um, I don't like the phrase Lordship salvation. A lot of people would classify me as Lordship salvation, but I reject the, the phraseology I don't like. I think that repentance is part of the gospel. I think that repentance is inextricably connected to faith. When you believe in Jesus, repentance is implicit in that because you're turning from sin to God. So that's what I would say. Some people call that Lordship salvation. I think that might be the wrong term for it. Um, once saved, always saved is a belief that once someone has turned their, their trust in Christ, they can never lose their salvation. Some people who think you can lose your salvation, they don't think you lose it through sin. They think you lose it through a, um, apostatizing the gospel, like where you, you reject the gospel. You believe in Jesus, so you're saved. Well, you reject Jesus. You choose to reject God. And that and so it's not like you sinned so much you lost it. Rather, you just chose you don't. You said you don't want it anymore. I don't take a side on that particular issue. Not currently anyway. Um, Soli Deo, Deo Gloria says, is Mike going to make any more worship songs? I enjoy listening to them and praising God last night. That's awesome. 
Um, also, channel's grown by quite a bit very quickly. I know, we're going to hit probably $100,000. $100,000. Yeah, right. <laughs> 100,000 subscribers. Probably by uh, the next time I put up a video. Probably by next week. Um, it's pretty exciting. That, that was my... I was actually my hopeful goal this year was to reach 100,000 by the end of the year, and I'm kind of blown away. Um, yeah, so worship songs. I have, I have some worship songs that are out there. You guys can see some if you look up. Just put Mike Winger Worship. You'll probably find it on my YouTube channel. I have a playlist as well of some songs. I I don't know if I'll make any more. Um, it's just not my focus, so maybe. I'm not as good at it as I am at other things, <laughs> um, but I'm glad it blesses you. Uh, Duolin says, how would you explain to non-Christians that we as humans are represented by Adam and thus inheriting Adam's sinful nature? Is not, is, isn't this unfair or inconsistent? Um, that's a tough one. I mean, I can tell people that Adam is my actual ancestor and the, the choices he makes affect me. I can also tell them that God specifically appointed Adam as the representative of the human race in the decision to eat of the fruit. He therefore brought us all into the fall. I can tell them those things and those things are, I think are true. But how do I make them feel good about it? Well, I don't know. I mean, who's going to feel good about the idea that somebody else made a decision that affected you? I think um, Romans, the book of Romans helps us out a little bit. Not in that it denies Adam's representation. It speaks of Adam's representation, but it, it says, but um, everyone died, even those who didn't sin according to the likeness of Adam. Why? And it, it goes on to explain, because we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. And so here's where I'll just tell the person, look, you've made your own choices. You're, you have chosen to sin. You have chosen to rebel against God. And then I can try to tie in, hopefully, the fact that Jesus is our new representative. That just as Adam in the garden represents all of us eating the fruit, so Jesus on the cross represents all of us dying for the punishment of our sin so that we might be restored into new life. So if you don't like Adam representing you, well, then how can you accept Jesus representing you? I mean, these, these are two sides of the same coin. Adam is a setup for Jesus. Adam is a preparation for the message of the cross. The, the tree in the garden is to get us ready for the tree at Golgotha. That's that's the idea right here. And so I see in Adam um, an important element there because it's it's communicating to us that we've got um, uh, that we've got a representative in Christ. And so that's an important element there. Um, let's see here. First um, Corinthians one eighteen. Uh, uh, the question is, and I don't know if that's the name of the person or if there are questions about that passage. Um, how do I explain to deists the divinity of scriptures? Most reject them because men wrote it. How do I refute it? Oh, okay. So, um, yeah. The, so some people say, how on earth do, do I believe that the Bible is God's word when it was written by men? And these are what I would call again common objections that are actually really bad. Why is that? Because Christians throughout time have always affirmed that men wrote the Bible and some women, right? That, like Proverbs, Proverbs 31, that's, that, was, that was by a woman. Um, so we have, we have human authors in the scriptures. How can we affirm that God, God wrote it? Well, we're never affirming God physically wrote the Bible. That's never what we've been saying. So you're refuting something that Christians aren't claiming. What we're claiming is that men were moved by the Holy Spirit when they wrote the scriptures and that somehow God was using human vessels, not like automatons where he took over their bodies, but rather he was using them in some fashion and he was inspiring them to write what he wanted them to write. In some cases, like with Isaiah, he's like, Isaiah, 
here's the message. And he gives him a verbatim word and Isaiah writes it down. Other times, um, like say the book of Philemon, Paul's writing a letter to, um, to this, uh, this, this Onesimus or about Onesimus to this uh, slave owner in the first century called Philemon to let him go and receive him as a brother and to elevate his status. And this is inspired ultimately by the Holy Spirit. So the question we should ask, and I like to start with this question. Here's what I want to say to people. Um, I love asking this question. I say, let's pretend that the Bible is inspired by God. How would you know? And they go, what? Because they've never even thought about this question before. So I say, let's say the Bible's inspired by God. And I put it a different way. What would you look for in the Bible as evidence that it was inspired by God and not just human authors? And now I start getting them thinking. And guess what? That's my series, Evidence for the Bible. I have a playlist. Send it to your friend. Um, this is the series, Evidence for the Bible, where we go through prophecy as, as evidence that there's knowledge in the scriptures, things recorded, information in the Bible that wasn't known, couldn't have been known to the human authors themselves. They had to have had some, some sort of supernatural knowledge given to them to be able to write these things. So that's the direction I would go. Um, another a different direction to go is you go from the resurrection of Jesus to the inspiration in the Bible, right? You, you say, well, if you believe Jesus rose, well, then you're going to believe in who Jesus is. Jesus affirmed the inspiration of scripture. So on his authority, you can argue for the inspiration of scripture. That's a different direction you can take. Um, let's see, test, test something. Monley says, if certain cessationists believe that God doesn't speak anymore, is this blasphemy? Are they saved? How can one serve God and not hear from them when scriptures suggest God does speak? Well, I think that uh, in my view, a cessationist could have the Lord minister some truth to them. They just wouldn't say that it was revelation of some kind. And so I think it ends up being semantics in some cases where... um, I'll give you an example. Some of you guys are not going to like this example. So... I apologize ahead of time. I'm just illustrating a point. I'm not supporting this. I have a friend who he's, he's, he's charismatic. You know, he believes in in that the Holy spirit can speak through him. Um, and he was leading worship and, um, he was at a church that was cessationist and they were like, we don't want none of that. God's telling me to tell you stuff happening on our stage. And so he's like, I I'll respect that. So instead he just prayed Lord, you know, I, I pray that you would help us to know. And then he communicated in prayer, the thing that he felt the Holy Spirit was trying to ask him to tell the people. And so now I'm not saying that that was a smart thing to do, but it was an interesting angle he took. And, um, to me, it gets at something, which is when a cessationist is being led by the Holy Spirit, they will just call it something different, a little different than when the charismatic is being led by the Holy Spirit. And so I I don't consider it like some blasphemous type issue. There are some times where it will be an issue and a problem, but I think that I want to be as gracious as possible to my brothers in the cessationist camp. Um, I do think they're led of the spirit and I think that they, they just will call it something a little different than, than I would as someone who's more charismatic. Nick C says, isn't it unfair to be born um, predisposed to Adam and Eve's sin like the curse of being born sinners, if I understand it correctly. And I kind of already understand, uh, I've already explained that. But let me add an element since we're bringing it up again. And that is, um, it's not really right for you or me to demand that we should have been born a certain way. Like, God, you should have made me born perfect with no temptations of any kind. Um, 
that's just not how I should have been made. I shouldn't have been made with sinful temptations. And I've been wronged because I am a person who has sinful temptations. I, I think that that is a, an, an indefensible position, morally speaking. So I would challenge the position and say, don't go there. So by the way, here's the cat cam. My cat just joined us. So um, uh, I'll give it to you guys. There's Moxie. There she is. There she is. All right. There's your cat cam moment. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> just from my cat people, watch all the viewers just click off right then. Um, okay, I'm gonna answer uh, say two more questions. We're gonna call it tonight. Thank you so much to my mods for being there. I love you guys, and I really appreciate you being there and helping me with this channel. I couldn't do it alone. And um, yeah. So Ethan Rogers says, "Hey Mike, how do you read Romans 1:16 that the power of God is what saves those who believe, or the gospel is the power of God and what saves those who believe, or both? What's Paul saying?" Interesting question. Let's look at the passage. Um, I'm not sure if I understand the question, to be honest, but I'll do my best to try to give a thoughtful answer. <coughs> for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Um, let me read the question again. We can all try to be on the same page as Ethan here. How do you read Romans 1.16? And he gives a couple options. That the power of God is what saves those who believe, or the gospel is is the power of God and what saves those who believe or both. I guess my answer will be both. My answer will be both. It is, it is the power of God. The gospel is, is, is how the avenue through which God's power will save those who believe it's the gospel. Um, they'll gain access to that power through the gospel. Um, and also, I guess actually maybe I wouldn't say, I'm just thinking about this as we do this. Actually, I might not say that the gospel in and of itself, the news in and of itself is what saves you because I just, while in a sense that's true, in another sense, I don't want to separate the gospel from how the gospel becomes powerful through the cross and through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so these are all together. So all together, they're the power of God to save. I hope that was thoughtful for you. Um, and then uh, Sean Fry says, if God is not the author of confusion, then why are there so many interpretations of scripture? Oh, thank you, Sean, for asking this question. You know why, Sean? Because so many people have the same question. It comes up a lot. Um, and I want to uh, try to answer it here off the top of my head, but but I'm glad to have an opportunity to talk about it. So um, uh, there's a lot of different interpretations of the Bible. And that in and of itself, that phrase in and of itself is a little bit tricky. Because it's not as though you have one interpretation of the whole Bible and then someone else has a different interpretation that's exclusive to yours of the whole Bible. And then we have millions of these that are out there, all mutually exclusive interpretations of the Bible as a whole, because that's totally not the case. In fact, when you examine it more carefully, you will see that throughout Christian history, there has been real consistency on things like who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, um, you know, sort of the, the essentials, mere Christianity, that these things are, there's so much agreement on those issues that I would actually say, we can't say everyone has different interpretations of the Bible. Uh, another side of this is denominations. A lot of denominations are out there, but a lot of them are disagreeing on secondary issues secondary issues like church government. Um, should it be elder led or congregation led? I mean, I wouldn't call this a different interpretation of the Bible 
These are just different forms of church government. Now, there are passages of scripture they will debate on, and they will debate on those. But in some cases, it's not even about the scripture. It's about tradition. And that's kind of a big deal. A lot of people, their issues aren't the Bible. Their issues are all this extra tradition that's outside the Bible. And so in Catholicism, this is the case. There's a ton of tradition outside the scripture that influences Catholic teaching and belief. And these things have little to do with the Bible. And so um, one of the, um, forgive me, I'm still, I still got a cold here. One of the issues with, um, with the debate between Catholics and Christians is when, when a Catholic and Christian discuss something, do we talk about just the Bible, like say the, I say Catholic and Christian. I'm not saying all Catholics aren't Christians or something like that. I just have to have terminology to talk about this stuff. Um, so the Catholic, non-Catholic, when they have a discussion, um, sometimes the, the, the non-Catholic wants to say, hey, um, show me the papacy in the Bible alone. And the, and the Catholics, I mean, like a legit Catholic can honestly say, I don't even have to show it to you in the Bible. I got it in church tradition. So here they're not debating over the Bible. They're debating over tradition. Yeah, so there's one of the issues as well. Um, so I would say we have large agreement over various things um, and uh, so that it's not like mutually exclusive views of the Bible all spread throughout Christianity. Um, another aspect of it is this. Um, humans are humans, man. Like, you know the way we are. Of course, if I get my ax to grind on some passage or some idea, you know, of course you're going to have with modern feminism going on, you're going to have people reinterpreting passages about women. That's just what happens because of a cultural issue. Um, so we're going to see these sorts of things happen and we, we can, we can chalk that up, not to the confusion in the Bible, but to human confusion about the Bible. And we have arguments and confusion about everything and every aspect of everything. Bring up an issue where you can get two experts in the field on any topic and they can debate about foundational issues in their field. It doesn't mean their field's totally muddy and unclear. It's like a human quality to be able to argue about everything and anything, um, no matter what the evidence says. And so there would be my, that would be my answer to you. Um, yeah, if you just have a plain reading of scripture, most passages become pretty obvious and some are still debatable. And I wonder if I'm understanding them correctly myself, but I don't think that invalidates the Bible as a whole. So, uh, I hope that helps you guys. Thank you so much for joining me. We're a massive turnout today uh, for this this non-Christians asking me questions. I really appreciate you, especially the non-Christians who put their questions out there. Thank you so much. I hope that your question was answered in a way that helps you. And I really hope it helps someone else who's just listening in and that it leads you closer to Jesus Christ. Because, I mean, I believe, I can say it straight face. I'm not selling nothing. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's your access to God. God who loves you, who made you and um, who has made a way for you to know him, has paid for your sin, that you might be restored into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I hope that you celebrate Christmas this, uh, this year, being able to actually celebrate Christ. Um, so yeah, um, thank you guys so much for, for being here and for joining me for the stream. God bless you.